been a, a very big week for us here in Scotland. Uh, the 2011 census data has been coming out, and uh, when it comes to the religious category, uh, this is the first time in Scotland where the largest religious group in Scotland is now the no religion category and is now greater than the Church of Scotland category, which normally in the past has been the Church of Scotland has been the largest religious group. Now, no, it's not. It is the no religion group. And I think in part that explains why um, we've also had the vote that took place in the Scottish Parliament in this past week, where despite a fairly vocal opposition to redefining marriage, the great majority of MSPs voted for this marriage bill, which will introduce uh, same-sex marriage, will we'll continue the process, which almost looks set now, to introduce same-sex marriage into Scotland. I'm hearing more and more from um, different churches that have been involved with helping out in their local schools, uh, have been getting alongside pupils, helping teach um, RE classes, uh, providing sort of pastoral care for the young people in schools, uh, that they are being uh, suspended from their actions and being pushed out of the schools as we see a rising sort of militancy amongst sort of the secular society of Scotland. So it's been quite a week, hasn't it, when you put all those things together. Now, how do we respond uh, in that sort of environment? And we just considered this a few weeks ago, uh, that we're tempted to a, a variety of responses. Uh, we're tempted to be enculturated and just absorb those values. Or we uh, become uh, intimidated and we decide we're going to retreat and that we're going to you know, uh, just hide in our little corner and have nothing more to do with society. Or, or the other response is that we just get infuriated. We just get angry. And we've been thinking uh, about what God has to say to us as people living in this sort of situation as we've looked at this book of First Peter. And we've been seeing how God has been telling us that he's, we've been called to understand our identity as the people of God and he's been calling us to live out that new identity uh, in the world as people committed to doing good for the glory of God. So let me just remind you of that. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11 and 12. And, and if you don't have a Bible, just hopefully you might find a red church Bible, page 1218. Uh, we'll take you to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we'll read verse 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is the mission strategy of the New Testament church. It is, as, I, as we've discussed a few weeks ago, it is a call to holiness and helpfulness. Uh, we are God's holy 
people who abstain, as it says in verse 11, abstain from sinful desires uh, that we see around us in the world today. But we're not only called to holiness, we're called to helpfulness. That we engage positively in this world, seeking to do good that reflects God's holy character in the world. It is this twin calling of being the holy people of God, called to do good and be helpful in society, that that is our mission strategy in an environment which is increasingly hostile to Christian faith and belief. And really that's been the big principle that Peter has been working out as we've continued on looking at this letter. And he's examined how we, how we relate to the government, how we relate in the workplace. And today we're going to be thinking about how that relates to marriage. And in each of these contexts, the, 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 the thought has been, well, how do we relate in a world where... Uh, we're in a minority group where we are viewed as the, as the aliens and strangers, where because of our identity as God's people, we are in fact the aliens and strangers in our society. And how do you cope surrounded by those who do not share your belief? That's been the focus in each area, and that is also the focus when it comes to marriage. How do you live out your identity as part of the people of God when you are married to somebody who is not a believer, when someone is not a Christian, what should you do? Well, let's read together. Uh, 1, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to look at, read the first uh, six or seven verses. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words, by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This is God's word. So keep it open. Um, We're going to examine this in two parts. Next week we're going to focus on husbands, but this week we're going to focus on wives. Now, Did you notice that there were more verses to wives and husbands? Did you notice that? Why is that? Well, you need to understand the first century context. In the Greco-Roman world, um, the wife was not expected to have any friends of her own, but merely to uh, spend time with the friends of her husband. 
and she was expected to worship the gods that her husband worshipped. And do you, do you see that obviously that, that creates significant tensions when the wife uh, has become a Christian and her husband is not a Christian. It was a far greater problem uh, when you had the situation of a Christian wife and an unbelieving husband than if you had a Christian husband with an unbelieving wife. It would have been expected, even if the husband became a Christian, the whole household would be expected to follow on, wife and whatever servants, that they would join with him in his newfound worship. Uh, but not so if the wife became a Christian. How very difficult uh, for the wife to, um, to head off uh, on a weekly basis and attend some sort of um, service of Christian worship and be meeting people for whom the husband had no knowledge. It would have been very awkward. Actually, it would also would have affected his standing in society. There, were, uh, there was a lot of writing, a lot of opinion about how a husband uh, sort of maintained his house. And it would have been frowned upon for a husband to have a wife who went off and had friendships with other people that he didn't know about. And it would affect his standing in society. It was a significant issue in the first century. Now, it is a significant issue for, for, for uh, people in that context today. It is tough for uh, Christian wives whose husbands are not believers to negotiate that today. But it was a far greater problem in the first century. And it is exactly to that situation that uh, Peter addresses his concerns. And that's why there's six verses for wives and only one for men. Men, you need to listen to this week. I've got some things to say to you today as well. But the main focus will be on you for, for next week. So what is the principle that he has to say? Well, here it is. Hold on to your pews. Christian women are called to submissively obey their husbands. Christian women are called to submissively obey their husbands. There it is in verse 1. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. Now, what does that submission look like? Well, there's an example of it in verse 5. Have a look in verse 5. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. Do you see that link with submission and obeying? Now, I know right now that this is causing tension I'm not, uh, you know, so disconnected from society that I don't realize that this is seen in some quarters as a fairly controversial perspective. Uh, you know, wives here, as you read about Sarah calling Abraham her master, don't choke on that. It would have been a known cultural value. It would have been uh, in the same way that we might address people today and say, Sir. Um, it was a term of, of uh, respect of the day. So don't choke on that point. 
But the principle is quite clear that uh, wives are, are called to submit themselves by obeying their husbands. Now, let me, let me just address a couple of issues so we can have a look at this. First of all, I know that, that this seems you know, just outrageous to many years today because of the impact of, uh, of, 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 I suppose, feminism on our society of the last 50 uh, plus years. And, and we struggle to hear what this is saying. But before we kind of just ch- chuck this out and rip it out of our Bibles, let's just reflect for a moment to see what have our Western values given us in our society. Have we, as a result of the sexual revolution and the rise of feminism, achieved a society where we have long-lasting, stable, loving marriages? I put it to you that it hasn't. That actually the evidence of uh, our so-called Western values today are actually producing an increasing number of single-occupancy households, of of loads of social problems as... uh, Families are broken, the issues of divorce, uh, the, the, the problems of, um, of, of uh, women, by and large, having to raise children on their own and struggling to pay the bills. So before we say, oh, what's, what's the Bible have to say? Well, actually, just think, actually, the way that we're heading is not exactly the most attractive way either. So maybe God has got something to say to us that we need to listen to. The second thing I want to say here as well is, have you thought about how, in reality, all of us engage in acts of submission and obedience every day without even thinking about it? Now, here's the truth of it. All of us, in different ways, within different relationships, choose to obey other people and submit ourselves to them. So, uh, if I was to be driving home and uh, a young sort of guy who looks like a teenager, uh, puts his hand out and indicates to me to pull across. If he's wearing a policeman's outfit, even though I'm much older than him, and maybe have more degrees or whatever, I will actually submit to that policeman and will obey what he says and I will pull over. And I would suggest that the majority of us here would do that as well. Or whenever my car comes up to some lights and a red light comes on, do you know what I do? I submit myself to the highway code and I obey the highway code and I stop the car. Uh, a little bit earlier in our service, we sang a bunch of different songs. And do you know what? We all, well, we all, most of us submissively uh, obeyed the band. A- and most of us kept to the tempo and to the tune. Some of us didn't, I grant. But most of us did that. Now, do you notice that actually every day, In lots of ways, we all engage in acts of submission, where we obey other people, and it has absolutely nothing to say about the equality of our status. That I pull over uh, to chat to the nice policeman who wants to check my tax disc or whatever it is, is not saying that he is superior to me or that I am inferior to him. It's, It's an irrelevant thing. So let's just take the heat out of this issue of wife submitting. Let's take the heat out of it. Now let's just look at this statement. Um, Of course, in the first century, this was not remotely controversial. This was expected of everyone 
in that Greco-Roman society. And Peter's main concern here is that they as Christians live in a way that is seen to be blameless at a time when those who are non-Christians are throwing slanderous allegations against them. So have a look at chapter 2 and uh, verse 15. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Now I don't think we should reject uh, the teaching of 3 verse 1. Do you notice it says, in the same way? And that's kind of uh, linking it back really to chapter 2 verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. Ultimately, why do I choose to submit myself to the policeman, to, you know, to the government? It is ultimately because I am doing it out of respect for the Lord. I'm honoring the Lord. I do it for the Lord's sake. And this is the same reason within marriage. Why, why should a wife submit to her husband? Well, she's doing it for the, for the Lord's sake. Uh, she is choosing to live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And the Bible's witness to this is quite clear, that men and women are created equally before God. And we'll examine that more next week as we get to the husband's bit. Co-heirs of, of, of the grace of life, as it says there. But we have... Uh, different roles, uh, complementary roles, the Bible would say. Um, if you want to read up more about this, uh, a helpful book I found in the past is a book called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which is written by John Piper, edited by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. And they offer these definitions, which I encourage you to have a think about. That mature masculinity for a husband is the benevolent responsibility to lead provide for and protect his wife. Mature masculinity for a husband is the benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect his wife. And they say the definition, they would say, of mature femininity is a freely given disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture leadership from the husband. Now, I'd imagine there's kind of two responses here. There might be some sitting here going, well, that's very clear, Paul. That's really helpful, and I hope she's listening. And there are others here, and you're saying, he is out of his mind. He has no idea what it's like to be married to this man. This is totally unrealistic. I could not submit myself. In fact, it would be a scary and frightening thing to do that. If you knew my... Husband, you, you know you're talking nonsense. And what I want to say to the men is, it is not our job to enforce verses 1 to 6. If I'm ever in a kind of a, a counseling session with a husband and a wife, and the man pulls out, well, you should submit to me, I know this is a deeply messed up relationship. As soon as the man has to assert that, He's completely missed the point. The, the, the bit that the man should be focusing on is being the sort of man that is worthy of such respect. He needs to focus on verse 7. 
which we're going to come to next week. It's a teaser for next week, isn't it? Next week sounds so exciting. It will be. But back to this week. I want to encourage you women to freshly consider this and, and actually see how liberating uh, this God-glorifying truth is. That's what I want to do. And I want to do that by just giving two motivating reasons for obeying that command and give you one example. That's what the text does. Two, motiv- two motivating reasons and an example. Okay? Two motivating reasons. Number one. Reason one. This is conduct that can win unbelieving husbands. Look back at verse 1 and 2. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the words, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. This teaching is not merely to wives with Christian husbands. Do you notice that? It is teaching to wives who have non-Christian husbands, husbands who do not believe the words. Um, Some people take these verses as saying that a wife who is married to a non-Christian should never really be talking about their faith. But that is logically not the case. Um, It is quite interesting that the husband has heard the gospel words and he's chosen to disobey it. Not follow it. So this is not saying that a Christian wife or an unchristian husband never talks about her faith. No, clearly he has opportunity to hear about it, but he's not currently obeying the call of Christ to uh, submit to his lordship and follow him. But if the husband has said to his wife, that's it. I don't want to hear any more about Jesus. I don't want to hear any more about your faith. Then the wife is not to be despairing because there is a powerful way that she can witness to her husband. And it is by the way she lives her life, her conduct, that they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Now, I want to say that this is not a guarantee. This is not a promise. Uh, this, is, this is not a law. I would hate for any wives in our fellowship to think, gosh, I've got to reach a certain level of reverence and purity, and when I hit that, bingo, he's going to become a Christian. No, that's not. That would be a terrible thing to labor under. Now that's to put your hope completely in the wrong place. And so I don't think wives should feel despairing if you evidence that you too are a repenting sinner who makes mistakes. But I think it is interesting that this conduct of uh, purity and reverence does put a limit on the obedience of the wife to her husband. The wife will seek to obey her husband in all ways that would be God-honoring and glorifying to him. But clearly, if they are to live lives that are about uh, having a reverence for God and about living out moral purity, uh, 
their husband could potentially ask them things that would go against that and they would have to say, look, I love you, but I can't do that because I love God. I love the Lord Jesus. And while this is not a guarantee, I want to say that I have known uh, in my previous congregation uh, at least two couples where uh, this exact tactic of just quietly going about living your Christian life, seeking ways to submissively obey your husband, has in fact won the husband to Christ. And and I want to say to uh, those um, women, particularly in our church, who've got husbands who are not believers, that we understand it must be very difficult for you. And that we know that, I know that there's people who would love to be members of our church, but have held back from membership because they think it would upset their, their spouse. And they would love to be coming to all the things that we participate in, but they can't because they've got to prioritize their time. And we understand that. And we want to pray with you in that. And we want to commend to you not to despair, not to give up hope, But seek to pursue this. Seek to find ways that you can submissively obey your husband and live out your Christian life and see what God will do. I I want to say, um, as we address a topic like this, uh, to husbands, it is never right to abuse our wives. I look at the stats in society, and so I assume in a room this size, it would be naive not to think that there could be abuse. It is always wrong for husbands to physically, emotionally, sexually abuse their wife. It's wicked. It is, in fact, a way in practice that you are... You are renouncing your marriage. You're walking away from your marriage commitment in in doing that. And I would want to say to wives that it is never a godly thing to allow your husband to keep sinning in that way. And uh, if you find yourself in that situation, seek help. Uh, Come and speak to your elder. Come and speak to someone on the staff team. It is not right. Well, the first reason is that This sort of conduct could win an unbelieving husband. The second reason is that this is beauty that never fades and it catches the eyes of God. Look at verse 3. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. The women in the first century, the wealthy women, were just as obsessed as modern women about having great hair, uh, great skin, a great body, great clothes. It was just as obsessed. Uh, In the first century, though, again, remember, the wives uh, merely had the friends of her husband that came around and didn't have her own friendships. 
Remember, in this context, imagine how difficult it would be uh, for a husband who's not a believer to see his wife getting dolled up and then heading out to meet some complete strangers on a regular basis. What would he think? It would make a difficult context even more difficult, wouldn't it? And I think that is the exact context with which he addresses this issue of outward adornment. Uh, the point here is not to say that Christian women should always look frumpy and uh, you know, wear sacks. Uh, the Bible is not against women looking attractive. And there's a big difference between looking attractive and looking seductive. And I think women and men know the difference when they dress in that way. But this is not uh, so much of saying, well, you know, don't put it. I mean, you could push this to an extreme in a wooden way, couldn't you? You could say to such an extreme and say, well, women shouldn't wear any clothes. It's not about outward adornment. Well, that wouldn't be good, would it? Let's face it. Um, not in Scotland. It's very cold. So it's not saying that. But it's saying to people, don't be obsessed about the outer beauty when the beauty that counts is the inner beauty, the beauty of the heart. Uh, that, that's what Peter is saying. Um, it's not wrong to uh, fix your hair, have some accessories, but that shouldn't be the focal point of your life. Instead, verse 4, it should be that of your inner self. Now, here's, here's something really encouraging. Do you know what? Uh, a Christian woman can get more beautiful the older she gets. It's not true of any other situation, but a Christian woman can become more beautiful because you can invest in the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Um, I think this is very liberating. You know, we've had a week where, uh, apparently, I never watched the program, but I saw it in the newspaper, you know, an Olympic swimmer who's won medallions is in tears because she, do, she doesn't conform to a certain body image of, of a, a particular babe on some reality TV show and she's crying about it well what a weird world we live in and in a world that's obsessed with Kim Kardashian and, uh, and Beyonce and all the rest of it well th- th- this is the truth uh, these women uh, as they get older will just look old it all sags outwardly it all fades adipose tissue gets added and the person who just goes through life always having Botox and facelifts just frankly looks scary. <laughs> so I want to encourage the wives of the church to focus on a beauty regime that, it, that is as significant, no, more significant than putting your face on, getting your hair straight. And it is pursuing these qualities, these inner qualities of a gentle and quiet spirit. Being gentle is not a weak characteristic. It is described of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus says in uh, Matthew, um, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Come to Jesus because he doesn't put burdens on you. He is the gentle one who takes burdens off you. That, that requires great strength to do that. 
It is a, a fruit of the Holy Spirit. This quality of gentleness is, is expected of men and women. That we would grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I think sometimes women get intimidated uh, about the, the, the quiet spirit one. Uh, particularly, you know, not, it's not a problem if you're a shy introvert, but you know, the people who've got a bit of a, more of an extrovert personality get intimidated by this. But we need to rightly understand what that means. Um, when Moses uh, is leading uh, the Israelites out of Egypt and the, the army of Egypt has decided that they want them back and, and they see on the horizon the, the Egyptian army coming straight down at them and they've got the Egyptian army on one side, they've got the Red Sea on the others, Moses says to them, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you will see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Be quiet. And and this point of being quiet is about saying that you are living in dependence upon God. You're not fussing around. You're not freaking out. Because you live in dependence of God. It's the same sort of dependence upon God that enabled Jesus in the middle of a storm to be lying asleep on a cushion. Because he had such dependence upon God. That is what is being talked about here. The inner beauty that doesn't fade, which God loves seeing and is attracted to, is a woman who is gentle in spirit, quiet, because she's living in dependence upon him. Two reasons then, and one example. What's the example? Well, thankfully, it's not people like uh, uh, Sarah Wellington and Beyonce and the Kardashians and Rihanna. It is Sarah. And I don't know whether you've, uh, you can have time later today, but I would encourage you to sit down and read through the, the brief chapters that deal with Abraham and Sarah. I think she's a fascinating example because she was actually a stunningly beautiful woman on the outside. But it speaks of her inner beauty as well. She was someone, someone who was willing to obey her husband in the most challenging of circumstances. Can you imagine having a husband who says to you, uh, God has told me that we need to leave where we are, leave our home, leave, leave our community, leave our wider family, because he's going to give us uh, a land somewhere else, and we're going. Can you imagine what, what you'd say to your husband if that was the case? Sarah went with him. And do you know what? They wandered through this land that God had promised, and by the end of, the, uh, of her life, do you know how much of that land they owned? Nothing. What great plan he had. Abraham had to buy a plot of land to bury Sarah in. He had to buy it. She'd followed him because he said, uh, God is going to give it to us. Uh, read on. I know. I mean, she was so beautiful that even in old age, uh, when she was older, uh, Abraham was worried uh, when they had to go to Egypt because of a famine, that, uh, that people would kill him to take his wife. And so he says to her, I've got a plan. You say you're my sister. What a dumb plan. What a stupid idea. And not just once, but twice, she obeyed her husband. 
And God in his grace protected her and kept her. What a difficult bloke to obey. And then he comes and he has some friends to visit and she's cooking a meal and she overhears them saying, do you know what, in a year's time uh, you're going to have a baby. And she kills herself laughing. Uh, I mean, she's, she's well past postmenopausal, And yet, she's willing to try for a baby with all the fear of having a baby in old age and she does it. She is a remarkable example uh, I would hold out to you to consider. How is it I mean, I, I can imagine people saying, well, Paul, you don't know what my husband's like. He's made such disastrous decisions. He, he's been a failure. How on earth could I, can I submit myself to this man? Well, think about Sarah. How, how is it that you could uh, submissively obey your husband when you're smarter than him and you make better decisions than him? Well, listen to what the women of the past did. What, what did they do? Uh, what's the phrase? Uh, verse 5. They put their hope in God. Their confidence was not because their husband was a stellar boss, a uh, stellar wise leader. They put their hope in God. Their quiet dependence was on a sovereign God. It's not an easy section and I would imagine a room like this that there's all sorts of complexities questions what I want to tell you about is that we do have a ministry that quietly goes on in this church and it's called uh, 131 group and it comes from uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 1 and um, on a regular basis I think it's once every couple of months I think something like that every three months it's not an onerous thing, uh, but um, women who are married to, uh, to non-Christian husbands meet together, and, and their desires want to obey God's words. They want to follow this, and uh, they meet to study the Bible together and pray for each other and encourage each other uh, as they face the challenges of living for Christ and yet wanting to honor their husbands who don't love Jesus. And I would encourage the whole church to be praying for them. Praying that the Lord will answer their prayer. And, and let's be those who are encouraging and helpful. Uh, it must be tough, quite frankly, to come to church and see all these Christian uh, husbands and wives and they look like they're having such a fabulous time. We know that that's not always the case. But it must be tough. So let's be a church that is in prayerful loving support of our sisters in Christ. And uh, if you want to know more information about that group, then Maureen Sprott, uh, I think Jean Naismith is also involved with leadership of this. Maureen's going to be down here at the end of the service if you want to ask any more questions about that, and she can let you know about that. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Let's pray.